Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster, with someone that needs no introduction in the podcast circles of finance, the one and only Preston Pish. I don't need, I don't even know how to introduce you, except for like you're one of the biggest names in finance podcasting, and who am I to introduce you? So I'm, uh, I'm humbled we, with that introduction because I definitely <laughs> don't see myself in that light for sure. <laughs> well, I think it's undeniable that the Saturday show that you guys put together for how long did you run that for? Oh, I think we started in late 2014. Maybe I think 2014 is when we started. Yeah, so I mean, that was what a five-year, six-year run that Six you were on now. that show. Yes, um, we're in twenty twenty-one. Yeah, so almost seven seven years or whatever the heck. That's amazing. Good yeah. for you guys. Early adopters on the new platform, and it crushed. And for those that can't put two and two together, we're talking about we study billionaires, the investors podcast, and now it's the investors podcast network, right? Yep, we got a couple different shows now. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get into it because I don't think anybody needs to hear who you or I are. And as <laughs> as always, this is not investment advice and it's for entertainment purposes only. So do your own work and don't blame us if something goes wrong in your investments. That's not on us. So I wanted to give a little bit of context for people that don't sort of know how you and I got connected. Do you want to go through a little bit about how you decided to start sort of a Bitcoin spinoff in the investors podcast network or what's a good way to frame sort of what happened? Oh, I see where you're going. Yeah. So I've owned Bitcoin for a long time. So I bought my, my first Bitcoins back in 2015 and I've always kind of had a Bitcoin bug for probably much longer than what people might realize. Like they know that we've stood up the, the show recently. I've been doing the show for not even a year that's that's had a bitcoin focus but for you know for a long time i know stig and i first covered it on our show in 2015 and after covering it on the show i bought some bitcoin and we talked about it on the show very sporadically up until this past year and then we started talking about it a lot and then in the last 6 to 9 months or whatever it was we decided that it would probably be better for us to do a show that's fully dedicated to that while still doing the other type of content that we were doing. And I just had a passion for, for talking about it. So it was just a natural fit for me to really kind of do that as a full-time show. And here we are. And I think I know where you're going to pick up with with your comments. (laughs) I'll leave it there. So, so, uh, both of us sort of came up through investing, studying at the church of Berkshire, right? I think that's fair to say we both like revere Buffett and Munger. Still do. That's right. And you and I actually first met at one of the investors podcast bar crawls at Berkshire. (laughs) I hung out with your dad that night for like the, almost the entire night. He's a great guy. And, you know, so I, I sort of followed you for a while and, Then, to be perfectly candid, right, when you started talking about Bitcoin a lot, I kind of like churned a little bit off the show Mm -hmm. and focused a little bit more on the media that I'm I'm doing. And I had an experience last year with a call on an equity that was sort of not loved. And I realized how much, you know, when you're public on something like that, there can be there's just a lot of emotions that I had tied up in it, right, because I had reputational risk and you know, as it worked and as this show has gotten bigger and my profile has gotten bigger, I've even felt more and more of that pressure. So then I got, I was sitting there thinking one day, 
looking at a Bitcoin chart, and I was like, man, Preston Pish killed it. And then I look at what you're doing because I started to go through the, the Saturday shows, and I realized that you're not a regular host on that anymore. You do come back for some mastermind ideas, right, or groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I saw you got this Wednesday show, and, you know, God forbid, I think to myself, boy, somebody really went out there and thought for themselves, made a major call, took a lot of career risk in my in my view, and crushed it. So I send out a tweet that says, props to Preston Pish for thinking on his own, right? This is a guy that studied at the church of Buffett and Munger. Munger calls this stuff, you know, rat poison or snake oil or whatever. And, and Preston's still not afraid to go out and make this call. And I'll tell you what, man, the vitriol that I got for complimenting you <laughs> makes me want to tell other people that they need to look in the mirror and do some therapy, man, because I don't know why anyone cares that much. And I just couldn't imagine what that was like for you. So I was like, I want to highlight Preston on my show now. So thank you to the trolls that kind of, you know, talk shit about my complimenting Preston, because otherwise this may not have happened. The thing you got to ask yourself is why are they so upset? I don't know, man. I really don't. Like you and I are two guys that I think love finance, right? We, We both do finance podcasts, at least in the start, because we both really were on an investing and learning journey podcasting seems to be the thing that you and I both enjoy. We both have certain ideas. You happen to have one that I think is not one that the traditional value school enables them to see in a similar way. And I think like I think people were felt like a little bit betrayed by you going off on your own idea or something, right? Like they probably imputed something on you doing that that they didn't like either in themselves or why they were coming to you, which I would argue neither one of those things is particularly healthy to impute on you. I found that whenever you get a huge emotional response out of somebody, you're dealing with a party that is speaking absolute truth and the other party doesn't want anything to do with it, or you're dealing with somebody who is speaking an absolute lie and the other party is, is, so upset and so frustrated that they want to scream. And what's kind of unique about, I think this situation is, is from my vantage point and the future will, will determine whether this is right or wrong. But from my vantage point, I look at this as just being a really obvious kind of position. People who, who, in my opinion, have not put in an enormous amount of work to understand it, see it as a total scam. And so when you combine those two things together, you get fireworks. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what's, what's playing out here. And, and let's, be, let's be very forthright with this. If I'm right about Bitcoin, it is going to be insanely inconvenient for people who have the, the opposite opinion. Insanely inconvenient. Why is that? Because it's going to pretty much eat everything. If you're in equities, especially if you're in fixed income, this is going to be a devastating event. If what my opinion is on what it's doing is, is right. So do you view Bitcoin as almost like the software is eating the world? Do you view sort of what Bitcoin is becoming as, and, and, and sort of this, I don't want to say just Bitcoin because I'm, I'm not as well-versed at all in this as obviously you are, but blockchain technology in general is just sort of like the new software is eating the world in your mind? Is that, is that a fair statement or no? 
So when, when people say the word blockchain, what they're talking about is something, or, or what I think they're talking about is something that's completely decentralized and that there's a reason for needing something that's completely decentralized. So you need a blockchain protocol in order to supply it. So when we say that, what we're talking about is a database that requires an immutable ledger that no entity, individual, or large sovereign nation can step in and stop. That's why you have a blockchain. So when I look at this whole movement and why a blockchain was selected, the reason a blockchain was selected is because no country, irregardless of the, the power that it wields, can ever shut it down. And that there's an incentive structure that's built based on the game theory that creates this incentive structure that will continue to pr propagate further adoption within the network effect of that protocol. Okay. So when we're, we're using terminology, that one's a really important one that I think most people in finance just kind of throw around the world, the word blockchain, but they really don't even understand what the implications of what they're saying is. And it's a huge, huge delineation between when you start talking about other quote unquote decentralized protocols, I think what you'll find is none of them are relative to Bitcoin, which is. And so, I mean, for somebody that doesn't even know what a protocol is, do you mind like defining that term? Yeah. So when you look at the internet and you're talking about the internet protocol, this is a consensus that everybody agrees is the software that we're going to use in order to transmit and exchange data packets with each other. So like right now, you and I are exchanging data packets right now, and we're doing it in the literal sense with just our language. Our language that we're using is the English protocol. If you were French and I was French, we would be conversing through a French protocol, and then we could switch protocols and we could speak English if we were both bilingual. Okay. That is a protocol. You don't have to agree to speak this kind of English. In fact, the people living over in the UK have a slightly different protocol, but it's really easy for us to understand what it is that they're saying. They just say it a little bit differently, but our ability to interpret those, those digital packets as they arrive into our brain, are it can comprehend it. So when we talk about protocols, we're talking about consensus. We agree to this protocol that we're using to converse right now. When you talk about Bitcoin, or, or any other type of protocol there. So you like, you have the transmission control protocol that rides on top of the internet protocol, TCP rides on top of the IP. These are protocols that the global computers are saying we're going to use in order to exchange data packets. And Bitcoin is just another one of those that's riding on top of the IP, the internet protocol. And it's a protocol that says, this is how we're going to define a fixed set of units which will eventually get to 21 million. And the consensus mechanism are the full nodes that are running. So like I run a full node here at my house. It pretty much takes no electricity to run a full node. But those full nodes are saying, this is the consensus. This, they, these are the rules that everybody's going to play by who wants to participate in Bitcoin. If you were going to put it into back into the language example, any person could say, nope, this is the dictionary that we're going to use. And these are the set of words that we're going to use. It's obviously not a perfect example, but it, it's kind of correlates. And so 
If you want to fork, and this is a popular term that you'll hear in this space, is if you want to fork the English language and you want to start coming up with your own bill kind of terms, you can do that. But that doesn't mean that the consensus of all the other people that are operating off the dictionary are going to go along with you. And so when you start talking about money and you start talking about a group of people that are saying, I agree, there's going to be 21 million units, no more. And this is the supply schedule that they're going to get issued at. You can see how there's an incentive structure for me to never change the consensus rules of the full node that I run and the 100,000 other people that run their full nodes geographically distributed all over the planet and onion wrapped in a tour kind of way so that you don't understand who's running them or how they're running them, but that they are being run. You can kind of understand real quickly how I have no incentive to debase the number of units that are operating inside of that protocol of 20 that will eventually get to 21 million. So if you come along and you say, I want there to be 40 million units instead of 21 million units, I'm going to say, good luck with that. Yeah. And good luck convincing somebody else to start running that too, especially at this point when you've got this many participants involved. And you would need everyone pretty much. I mean, you would need a critical mass to agree to change what they're doing in order. I mean, it, it's logically or it's uh, practically impossible, right? I mean, you, I, I just, mean, you need so many people to go against their own self-interest. That's right. That it makes no sense to say that that's probably going to end up happening. And when you look at, I, I don't know how many are mined right now. I think it's around 18 million of the 21 million coins are already mined. And you look at people who have owned it since 2015 and they're up over 10,000% from the time they started buying it. You know, it's a little hard to convince somebody who has that to, to change <laughs> yeah, you their Yeah, You want to give it all back so uh, we can have a couple more coins? No, well, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. So how long did it take you? So you you said you got interest in what, 2015? Yeah. So what happens? You buy a couple in 2015? Like what's your learning journey? Well, when like I was this? buying them, they were $220. So yeah, it's yeah. pretty easy to buy a couple of them. Yeah. So my journey started off, we just heard about it. And like you, you're creating content. So we're just trying to come up with creative ideas for shows and whatnot. So we're like, hey, let's cover Bitcoin. Like, what the heck? Let's see what it is. So in preparation for covering it, I read a book called The Age of Cryptocurrency. It had just come out at the beginning, I think, of beginning of 2015, maybe late 2014 is when the book came out. And I read this book. And you got to remember, this is at the same time that I'm learning about macro and learning about Ray Dalio, his 80-year credit cycle stuff. I never shook the feeling from the 2008 crisis that anything was fixed. Like following 2008 and looking at the quantitative easing that was happening, I was saying there is no fix that's happening to any of this. Like this is a bandaid on a massive wound to the body that's bleeding out. And there's no way this ends well, that they're stepping in and manipulating the cost of capital. So like I understood that stuff back in 2015. And I was saying, how is this going to end? Like, how is this going to be resolved? And so when I started reading this book, The Age of Cryptocurrency, and started hearing, well, this is a movement by cypherpunks that have been trying to figure out a way to create a fixed number of digital units that operates over a, a network via a protocol for decades. Like, I think they've been trying to, to crack this, like people like Adam Back and some of the key you know, programmers in the space. I think they've been trying to crack this from like the early 90s, maybe even the late 80s to 
create sound money over a protocol on the internet. Like it's not something that's new at all. The solution that was supplied in 2008 was, which was use a blockchain to force something in the digital space to have a scarce, finite amount of units. So I read this book and I say, this is the solution potentially to this disaster of competitive global devaluation of fiat currencies that have no peg. Because when we get to the root of the issues that we're seeing in the global economy, I'll even go as far as saying why we see social unrest happening globally. For me, it's the money. It's the fact that, that no currency is pegged to anything. And there's a financial incentive for domestic nations to continue to devalue their currency so that they can attract higher supply and demand or, or higher demand for the goods and services that that nation is producing. So if everyone's operating off of this idea of a floating fiat currency between nation states, answer this one for me. What's their incentive to not debase their currency at a slow enough pace that the other nation states can't fully like step in and try to stop the flows that they're trying to attract domestically into their country. Cause that's the game. And that's the game since we've come off the gold standard back in 1971. And when we came off the gold standard, guess what? Every other country came off the gold standard simultaneously because of the Bretton Woods agreement. Okay. So there, this incentive has been in place. I would argue that the reason it's been able to play out for so long is because there's been so much interest rates to play with. When we came off the gold standard, interest rates were going up. They peaked in 1981 at 16% on the 10-year treasury, and they've been able to play around with the federal funds rate ever since. Now they've stepped into the longer duration of the curve, and they've continued to manipulate that. And as long as they had interest rates to play with, they've been able to kind of manage this money supply with a swap for monetary baseline dollars for credit. And now they're at an end game because now you're getting down in, in, especially in other parts of the world, not necessarily the United States, where in nominal terms, you're in negative rates. And so now how in the world do you incentivize anybody to possibly sign up for a contract that guarantees the loss of their capital? Yeah, that one's tough. That one's tough. So- I, I went off on a little bit of a tangent. No, no, I, I appreciate okay. it because it, it frames sort of how you're seeing the world and, and yes. how you came to your conclusion. That's right. And so, yeah. so I read this in 2015 and I had, I had all of those opinions back in 2015. So I'm reading this book and I'm saying, my God, if this thing could actually work, which was a huge, huge if back in 2015, they had major scaling problems. Like when you look at how many transactions, I, I don't know what the number is, but it's like, 20 transactions per second that can, that can happen on the base layer of the, of the blockchain. Like in meanwhile, you got like visa and mastercard that we're doing. I don't know what the number is, but I guess yeah, 20,000 amounts 50, every, second, 000 right? every second. Yeah. yeah. Like people are looking at this and saying, well, how in the hell will that ever scale? Right. So like, that's what we were dealing with back in 2015. And so I saw it much more as a niche position to like, Hey, the upside on this could be absolutely massive to the point where it would literally replace fiat currency totally. And when I was looking at what it was valued at at the time, which was, I, I don't remember, but uh, I think it was under $10 billion at the time. 
I just remember looking at the upside and saying, Hey, this could be 10 trillion to 50 trillion maybe, or something crazy like those numbers. And I was like, when I look at this from an asymmetrical trade, like why in the world wouldn't I take a 1% position in my portfolio at, yeah. at a minimum? Right. And so like that was just it. And so it's a little hard to not dig deeper and study this thing like a fiend when you start seeing a 10 or a hundred X return. Yeah. When you start seeing that, then it's like, okay, I don't want to sell a winner, especially when my initial base case was, Hey, this thing could be worth $10 trillion or, or a number even higher than that. Let me dig deeper and try to understand how the scaling could potentially be solved. And so, I mean, then the rabbit hole just got deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, dude, it just, it, it's never ending. We could sit here and have a conversation about all the nuances of this for six hours and we wouldn't even begin to cover it all. Well, and I want to recommend like people that do want to listen to you have those levels of conversation. You have a Wednesday show every week on the investors podcast, the main feed, right? Drops yeah. a show every yeah. Wednesday. That's got it. I, I was listening to some of them to prepare I don't understand half of what you guys are saying, but what I do understand is one of the fun things about the podcast is I've been able to have some conversations that I otherwise wouldn't. And yeah. one of those conversations was with Nafal Sanala, who currently, I, I think, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth and anyone can go listen to two and a half hours of us talking if they want to know exactly what he thinks, right? But he started out sort of like a sound money. I, I think he was more Austrian in his thought, and now he's sort of leaning towards an MMT type thought, at least a temporary one. He's not like dogmatic, which is one of the things I really respect about him. I personally, like, I mean, I voted for Ron Paul in back in the primaries, right, when I could, and I, I supported his campaign. So I have like a, there's definitely a part of me that identifies with the Austrian school of thought. I have since sort of left some of that behind as an investor because I've sort of tried to deal with the world as it is, not as I want it to be. Mm -hmm. But what I can respect about the idea of Bitcoin is it gives people the ability to opt into a system where they are, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe empowered to opt into a system that they choose to want to play in. And the other thing that's really easy for me to get my head around, and I know that gold bugs are going to hate me for saying this because all the gold bugs are going to say, well, gold's got industrial value. Like gold doesn't trade for its industrial value. And to me, the flaw in the gold argument has always been like, okay, well, let's say I have all my bars and the world takes a complete dump. Like who I'm going to carry around gold bars and like that's going to end up the strongest guy on my blocks going to end up with all my gold. Whereas like Bitcoin, I think I, I understand the transportability of it. I understand sort of, I know that it's not like necessarily anonymous, but I do understand that like it's a lot more anonymous than carrying around a huge sack of gold bars one day if you need to like flee the country or something like that, or if you just want to go to a different state or whatever. So and, it's just and more importantly, more importantly than that, Bill, the trust to use gold, especially at a sovereign level, is still there. You still are required to trust a third party when you're dealing with gold. In Bitcoin, that's not the case. And that's a huge, huge... Why, does gold, why has gold always failed at a sovereign level? 
because, don't know the answer to that outside of incentives. So yeah, it's it's because anytime let's look at let's look what happened with the United States on the gold standard. So the U.S. goes on a gold standard, 1944, Bretton Woods. But what did the U.S. do? And and everybody else went followed pegged their currency to the dollar, and then the dollar was pegged to gold, right? 1944. So if you pull up a chart of the money multiplier from 1944 up until coming off the gold standard, that's, what they, that's how they debased it, is because the banks have a money multiplier that they're pegging it to gold. So it starts off as a promise of, hey, for every $20, you get one ounce of gold. And if you come in and you bring it in, we will honor that and we'll give it back to you. And then that turns into uh, $30 per ounce of gold and we'll redeem it, right? And this money multiplier kept adjusting and kept adjusting for decades, but they were doing it just slow enough that no one really noticed. Then you get to 1971 and it's like, hey, about that gold, we just don't even think that it's, it's really <laughs> yeah, we're, required. We're not interested in that anymore. <laughs> we're not really interested in it. No one else should be either. Like currencies are just, you know, it's, it's dollars now. And like the world doesn't necessarily need that, which is a true statement in the short term. But in the long term, all of a sudden, things are starting to fall apart. And people are like, why is everything in the world falling apart right now? Well, maybe because they printed $30 trillion since 2008 globally and stuffed it straight into the hands of, the, of everyone who is holding fixed income, manipulating the rates lower, okay, which put a flood of money straight into the top that never trickled down. And they're wondering, where is the inflation? Where is the inflation? Well, maybe it went straight into the hands of people that had fixed income. And then as the rates went down, the capitalization rates of all the equity went sky high. It's, it's the easiest. When, when I hear people say that, oh, we don't have any inflation. Well, yeah, you don't. Not in that gauge you're looking at. But if you think that gauge is accurately measuring the money supply, you are totally kidding yourself. Like, yeah, I like mean, that's asset elementary inflation, especially has been crazy. It's elementary level stuff. Like this is stuff that if you told, you told your kids that are in elementary school, they would ask these questions and they would arrive at the conclusion because it's that simple. Like if you and I were playing a game of monopoly and the banker wanted to keep increasing the money supply, but the way they did it was they bought the assets off the board. Okay. Well, who's holding all the assets? the person who's collecting all the income right now that's winning the game, right? So now you're going to add more money into the mix and you're going to stuff it straight into the person's hands that hold the assets. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to look at the remaining assets on the board and say, hey, I know that that you bought that for a hundred and I'm clocking you right now every time you go around the board, but I'll pay $300 for that remaining asset that you hold on your balance sheet because I can. Because the bank just stepped in and bid the hell out of the, the assets that I was just holding. And now I got to buy some more, right? And it's, it's a decapitation of the middle and lower class if you right. continue to do QE. So everyone's looking at it like, why is UBI happening? Like, oh, I just don't understand. Well, because you just obliterated the middle and lower class and they're, they can barely make it from day to day. Of course, yeah. you're going to have to step in and do UBI. Well, guess what? Now, if you're going to manipulate the board by giving everybody instead of $200 going around go, you're going to give them $500 or $1,000. What are you going to do for the person who holds the, the assets? 
Well, you're going to bid up the prices of every time they land on your property. And, and since you own all the properties, you can bid the prices of their rent as high as you want it. Like it's just so freaking basic. But if you talk to anybody in finance or any type of academic economics genius, they make it seem like this is normal and that this is really complex stuff. It's so straightforward. So I guess that's the thing that I, I follow a lot of what you're saying and, and agree with a lot of it. My answer has been to own assets like Disney because I say like, well, they're going to raise prices over time, you know, and, and that got a little bit easier to stomach paying the price when, you know, March came around and I actually waited a little bit. I didn't buy in March or anything, but I, th- I think it was like June, whatever. Long story short, I tend to continue to agree with the idea of if you own assets that are productive, whatever happens to the currency, the equity holder will probably end up earning more. Like, I, I don't know that the equity holder loses wealth because the funds will end up getting diverted back into the, the productive asset. That said, so, until you get like really taxed, that's that's kind of the major flaw in my thinking, right? It can always be taken from you or whatever. So how do you think through that? So equity holders are going to continue to dominate those who don't hold equity. The people who are going to get crushed, and, and this this continues to work, as long as some alternative currency does not step into the market and supply itself as a better alternative and trust doesn't break down in the, in the form of currency that's currently being used, that game will continue to persist and the equity owners are going to continue to dominate. If that changes and there's a new unit of account, the business is preferred to, to deal in, in order to preserve their buying power. Well, things start to get really interesting really fast. And here's how. So the first thing that becomes an absolute disaster is fixed income because all of those contracts are denominated in that currency that's losing trust. So who in the world is going to lend in fiat terms if trust is breaking down in that unit of account? Because they're going to be paid back, especially at longer duration, they're going to be paid back with that erosion of trust currency, that that breakneck debasement currency that they wrote the contract in. And right now, to follow on to what you're thinking, a lot of the companies that can afford to, to issue debt have been pushing maturities further and further out, right? I mean- Because they're smart. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, that's what I tell some people about enterprise values. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get that an enterprise value shows up the same on a screen, but like, if you don't owe debt until 2060 and the other guy owns it in 2026, that's a completely different, yeah, that's a completely different (laughs) enterprise value. Like that. I don't want to have that conversation, right? You need to have nuance in the discussion. And I think what you just described is the biggest mistake that value investors are making today is because they're treating these these risk-free quote-unquote rates as if they're real, as if they are a real free and open settled interest rate. And so that as me, as a hardcore value investor, it might not sound like it, but let me tell you, deep down inside at my core, I am a value investor, but I also know how the equations work because I'm an engineer first. Okay. 
And whenever I'm looking at this, okay, and I find it as no coincidence that Michael Saylor is also an aerospace engineer is, is his undergrad degree. Because when I look at the equations and I start saying, what if one of these variables that I'm using as an input is wrong, right? And when I think about the manipulation that's happening in the, in the fixed income market, not only do I think it's wrong, but I think it's grossly misunderstood and, and like out of this universe wrong. Okay. So let's go back to our monopoly example. If we want to really actually understand what the debasement rate is, how would we figure that out from just a first principles level of thinking, assuming there's no credit in the system? Well, you just look at the expansion of the money supply. Like if there was a hundred dollars in the system before, and after one hurt frequency occurs, there's $110 in the system. Well, you had 10% debasement in that system. And if we debase it by another hundred, well, then you have, you know, a 50% debasement rate. And so when I look at the M2 money supply and its growth rate in our economy last year, we're a double digit debasement. And so if it's nesting itself into asset prices, is that the real inflation rate? Or is this thing over here that I'm being told is, is the real interest rate, risk-free rate of the 10-year treasury that's getting bid and is probably going to have yield curve control smacked on top of it, which effectively means we'll, we'll print as whatever amount of money is required to peg the yield at X percent is yield curve control. I guess I just have a very different opinion on what inflation is. And so when I'm talking about risk-free rates and discount rates for equities, and it's a premium above this quote-unquote risk-free rate, I can't do the calculations with any type of confidence that they're free and open. My opinion is, is that the market is completely manipulated to the nth degree because everyone's using these rates as if they're real. And, and as you well know, in any other type of Buffett person, they know it all comes down to the discount rates, that that inflation is setting the, the basis for any type of premium that's built on top of that for discount rates uh, for everything on the planet, for every asset or equity-based thing on the planet and fixed income. That's why I'm a Bitcoiner is because of all those things. And I'm saying, yeah. I'm going to start using this as my unit of account because it's a fixed supply thing. Not only that, but it has an adoption rate, a network effect that's playing out with that's somewhat un like it, it is such a massive network effect that's playing out right now that, I mean, just look at the hash rate. Look at, this is all. So what's like, the hash rate for somebody that doesn't know? So when you're talking about the hash rate, you're talking about processors that are coming on that are securing the network. And the people that are securing the network with the hash rate are doing this because they're financially incentivized to secure it. And you know how I told you there's 18 million coins approximately right now, and it's going to 21, 21 million. Those remaining coins are supplied to these miners that are securing the network that are doing these complex guessing mathematics. It's all about encryption. It's all about one-way functions that they're trying to solve. And as they're solving these things, they're getting rewards that come onto their balance sheet because they're businesses, right? They're doing these complex problems. They're rewarded in Bitcoin. 
And then if they need to pay their electrical expenses in order to continue to secure the network, they're selling their Bitcoin for fiat to pay their electrical expenses today. But I suspect that that energy companies are going to start accepting Bitcoin here probably in the coming three years. So I I think like the thing that I find so offensive when people say something to me like, how can you congratulate Preston? It's like, this guy has just talked for 37 minutes about a thesis. And by the way, I think a lot of what you said as I've scrolled through your past comments and some of your old episodes is correct. If, if for no other reason than I think you pitched pretty early that there would be an, an incremental adoption curve and that would create, if you just break it down to the, the, the very, very core, a funds flow thesis that to your point when it was 220, you were like the asymmetric upside on here is like crazy. And I think that a lot of people, I call this, it's almost part of the value disease, but I think that a lot of people hear Buffett and Munger talk. And if when I really listen to Buffett and Munger, the takeaway that I have gotten from them is always think for yourself. Amen. Like no matter what. Right? Amen. And then people hear them say one thing and their brain turns off. And they're like, well, Buffett and Munger said this, so this has got to be it. And it's like, you people aren't even listening to what these guys are preaching. I remember reading The Snowball back in 2008 when it first came out. And one of the biggest lessons I got from that book, Buffett talks about going to Geico and meeting the, the CEO of the company. And the gentleman asked Buffett, like, why did you buy this or something like that? And Buffett's response was, well, because you did because some famous investor did was his response. And the guy said, let me tell you, like, and I'm obviously par- paraphrasing. I have no idea how it was actually, you know, said to him, but, but my, the way I remember the story, my takeaway was if that's how you're investing kid, you are going to be in a world of hurt. Yeah. You, you need to learn how to think for yourself. And just because I do something does not mean you should do it. And that goes for anybody listening to this right now. Like, because I'm buying Bitcoin, you're buying. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody ever say is what you should be thinking in your brain when somebody says, I, I bought it because so-and-so bought it. Yeah, that's right. Especially when you're talking about your money, right? Like you're talking about something that is designed, like you own it to secure your financial future. However you choose to express that is fine. But like if you're betting on your financial future because I'm betting mine in a certain way, and you don't know all the questions like what are my upcoming obligations? What's my duration on the bet? Why do I have it sized the way I have it sized? What are my other investments? Like you don't have any idea what I'm doing. If you're signing on and reading 13Fs and a hedge fund's doing something and you don't understand that there are some funds out there that have huge incentives to take big swings because they're going to get huge carry. And like, yes, the guy's got some reputational risk if he goes under, but a lot of people release more funds, right? A lot of people have different iterations of strategies and then they market one strategy. And then like people look at the 13F of the strategy that's hot. It's like, yeah, you're going to get waxed. Like, Well, and I think the biggest piece, if you don't have your own investment thesis, you're going to have no conviction in the trade. Yeah. Like, so you're going to buy it because you saw so-and-so bought it. You're not going to have any clue why you own it. And then when the price action goes in the opposite direction, you're going to be questioning yourself like, oh my God, did they, did they get out? I don't know. They only file every quarter. Like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm down 20%. I better sell this, especially my God in Bitcoin. Look at the volatility. You, 
you buy that because somebody else did it and you don't even understand what the heck you're doing, you're going to get murdered. Yeah. Because you don't have any conviction. The one the one thesis that I've been watching a little bit is the pot stock thesis right now and and part of the reason that I'm intrigued by it is like it, my understanding is that like Pershing doesn't even allow people to custody assets like Pershing won't allow pot stock US pot stocks to be held there right mm-hmm. so there's just a ton of reasons that are structural that people are precluded from buying it right now mm-hmm. and this is you know obviously the pitch that the bulls are making so you got to understand that they have like motivated reasoning to see this I do think that like there's validity to that, and I do think that there's validity to saying like Wall Street is going to try to to make money on weed one day, right? When it's actually legal, and the volatility in that reminds me a lot. Uh, not it's nothing near Bitcoin, but it reminds me it's something similar, right? It's like a nascent idea that I think there's a lot of disparate opinion on where it may go, where it may not go, and if you don't like, I've watched. I just watch the Twitter feed sometimes when stuff's crashing. Like some people have no idea what's going on out there and they're like looking to other people on Twitter for conviction. That's not going to work. Like it's, you're going to get murdered. Yeah. It's the best way to sell at the bottom. Yeah. And I'm, I'm confident that right now you could out trade me on Bitcoin. I I have no, (laughs) no, no doubt in my mind, but I'm intrigued, man. And I'm intrigued because I find it interesting that people still dismiss it as just like an idea or just a scam because I've gotten it's a trillion myself. dollars. <laughs> yeah, well, let's say it. Let's say it is just an idea. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, isn't gold? Isn't the minority interest in a lot of equities right? Unless you're getting cold hard cash back, the idea that you have a claim on the assets that's going to come to you eventually is sort of just an idea. I mean, I know that it's a different type of idea. And I understand that some people get their conviction in cash flow and their belief in value investing philosophy. But I would argue that you get your conviction in your version of Bitcoin fundamentals, which is not that much different than what some people gain their conviction in equities from. So I don't understand this idea of like, well, it's just a thought because thoughts, art is just a thought. Like there's no inherent value in Monet paintings. It's just society values them. I don't understand why that's an that I don't understand why that criticism makes people say, therefore, this isn't worth exploring. I think it all goes back to what we originally said, which is if you're approaching it from the lens that this is a scam and anybody involved in it is a scammer, and then you're looking at the price chart and it's up eight hundred percent in the last twelve months, something like that. Not only are you looking at that and saying that person deserves to lose all their money because they're a scammer, but you're also just saying their luck is going to end and it doesn't seem to ever happen. Yeah. Right. And so and that makes you like more angry, right? Cause that it's makes like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's a yeah. scammer. This is fraud. And here he's making more than I am. They're looking at the price chart and every price chart they've ever looked at in linear terms, which is a really important piece any chart that they've looked at in linear terms that looks like that is a tulip mania chart where the person's about to lose everything. And they're saying, why isn't it happening? And why are they saying these mean things to me online? I don't like the, this group of people, right? You know why they're saying mean things? And, and I don't 
like to participate in being rude to people. I really don't. Yeah, I know. Um, I that's one of the things I admire about you. I I've I mean we've met now twice I think, and I just kind of I watch how you interact with people, and you have always been you strike me as polite. Except one time I heard you get a little bit angry at one point when, when <laughs> it you were talking. <laughs> yeah. But, but this is what I'm trying. Yeah. This is what I'm getting at is when, when somebody's saying you're going to lose it all, I'm looking at that person and saying, you don't even understand a 10 second piece of a counter argument to something I could talk about for literally eight hours straight without stopping the, the technicalities, right? And so I'm looking at you and I'm just saying, you're a joke. Yeah. You're a joke. You're not even worth my time to respond to because you know nothing about this. And then you compound it with, if you've been in the space for a while and you're up, you've had a 10X return, right? Or a 100X return, okay? Because there's a lot of us out there with those returns. We're looking at it even more and it doesn't mean that I'm going to have more of them. I'm not saying that in a, in a braggart kind of way. I'm saying it from the lens of somebody saying you're going to lose it all that you know has no counter argument whatsoever. And here you have this history of six years of owning this thing. And you're saying, thanks a lot for your opinion. Have a nice day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? It's always like, well, it's Tulip Mania 2.0. It's Tulip Mania 2.0. It's going to crack. It's going to crack. Yeah. And I guess where I've gotten, you know, in, finance and I, I really do attribute a lot of it to doing media which is why I am sometimes conflicted because I I have these conflicting thoughts of when you're talking you're not listening and if I'm doing media then I'm not reading these 10k's and like I was told that I'm supposed to be reading 10k's media and twitter have accelerated my learning so much faster than any amount of 10k's ever possibly could have mm-hmm. that like this is this has just been by far the most efficient use of my time and I happen to enjoy it and I have realized that there are a lot of people that are doing things that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So rather than saying now, like, that's stupid, what I try to ask myself is, like, what don't I understand about this? Yes. And and I I just am open enough to understand that I may not know the answers, even though it may not make sense to me. That's because I probably have work that I have to do on my end, not because the world is irrational perfect example of what you're saying for me personally, I just, I could never bring myself to own Tesla stock. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people, especially in the Bitcoin community, love Tesla, right? They see it very similarly to to Bitcoin. I, I don't see it anywhere near being similar to Bitcoin, but there's people out there. And if you told me last year that Tesla was going to hit a peak with the price action, I would have said, yeah, you're probably right. Right. I don't own it, obviously. But when I, what do you mean when, when I, you say a peak with the price action? I'm just trying so the to price action what you're on saying. yeah the, the price action on Tesla was was looking yeah, like it went a parabolic. Bitcoin, it was yeah. looking like a Bitcoin chart, and I'm thinking that thing's going to melt down. But I would never go out on Twitter and say that because I'm pretty sure I'm just dead wrong about the trade. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, that happens when you start to talk to really smart people, right? You're like, oh yeah. shit, there's like actually thoughtful people on the other side of this. I have enough recognition of myself to just say, Hey, this is my opinion. This is the reasons I have it. But based on what the market's telling me, I'm just dead wrong. I don't know why I'm dead wrong, but I am at least so far. You know, my guess is that I'm going to continue to be wrong about it. 
but I have no position in it. So it doesn't matter, but it's yeah. an example of what you're saying. And I'll tell you doing the show. And here's, here's the thing that'll really, this is what I encourage people to do on Twitter, especially go find somebody that has the opposite opinion and in a very constructive way, in a nice way, say, Hey, I disagree with you on this. Help me understand your point of view. Because when you go into an argument, there's two, there's two things that you, it's, it's a binary thing when you go into an argument. Okay. You can approach the argument from the frame of reference and the intention of learning from the other person, or you can step into an argument with the intention to protect your ego and, and force the other person to think that they're wrong by spouting what your opinion is. So anytime you engage in a, in a constructive argument with somebody, you have to ask yourself, am I doing this for number one or am I doing this for number two from your intention? Am I trying to learn from somebody or am I trying to tell somebody that they're wrong and that, that I got to protect my ego? So for Bitcoiners or, or for people that don't believe in Bitcoin, I can tell you the Bitcoin community is absolutely ruthless, ruthless. But if you approach it and you're nice and you're just like, Hey, help me understand this. I cannot under, I just cannot understand why somebody would own this because of X, Y, and Z. And you frame it up that way. People are going to come in there and they're going to answer your question. In fact, they might actually go way out of their way and respond to things and, and hand off articles that go into a ton of depth responding to certain things. I would tell you one of the main reasons I think most Bitcoiners are so active on Twitter is because they're desperately trying to find somebody that can prove them wrong. They're hmm. desperately trying to find somebody. Now, that a cynic can, would tell you they're doing it to pump their own book. Oh, I'm just yeah. telling and, you what the, what the yeah, cynics and that's would fine. say. That's fine. They can say that. I can just tell you why I'm doing it personally. I really want to find somebody that can actually come up with an argument on how it could fail at this point. Because so if I, you're somebody I've that's listening and you hear this, then you know go to Preston in a constructive way and have a yeah. conversation if you think you can do it. Yeah. When, and, when you said that people are ruthless, my interpretation, because I've actually interacted with a couple of Bitcoin people since I've said that I'm intrigued by it. Yeah. I have found that they are far from ruthless. I've found that they're, they're much more like you uh, said, where they've sent me articles and they've been really thoughtful. One guy, mm -hmm. Brad, who is a great guy, was helping me on an energy idea, like a midstream idea. And then we got talking about Bitcoin because it just mm -hmm. happened in the conversation, right? And And... You know, this is a guy that's just like, this is what I think. This is why I think it. Tell me what you think after reading this stuff. You know, and, and to your point, it's, I believe that I benefit a lot because I just don't, I don't care about fighting with people. I don't care if I'm right or wrong. I just yeah. want to figure stuff out. And like, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Almost ever. On this show, all of my guests, I think, are smarter than me. But you become your peers. Yeah, that's right. So if you can approach things in a way that you're genuinely curious and you're willing to try to add value where you can, I have found it to just be like an immense benefit to my life. And I don't yeah. understand why people don't embrace it. Yeah. It's well, it's an ego thing. Yeah. You, you don't have the ego that you feel like you have to defend yourself or you're not insecure because that's what drives it. It's a fear of, of insecurity that drives a person to feel like they have to defend everything because they feel like, the, the public is going to view them as not being smart or being the stupid person or somebody who just has a dumb opinion about something. They don't want to look that way and they feel vulnerable. And so they feel like they always have to defend themselves. 
And so it's their ego that's driving that behavior. And, and just to kind of correct maybe my comment about them being ruthless, they're ruthless if you're rude. Yeah. They're ruthless if they feel like you're coming to the discussion it, from the position of, I'm going to prove you wrong because you're an idiot. They're going to eat you alive. And I've heard a lot of counter arguments. You know, when you're in the space for that many years, you hear a lot of counter arguments on how this thing could fail. So I, I've yet to be surprised with new counter arguments in, in quite a long time, but you know, bring it my way. Maybe, maybe, maybe you got something. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think what happened to me and your show is I connected with you guys because I was trying to figure out my way. And I always liked how you guys approach the show from a learn first mentality. And then I felt like there was like a lot of macro stuff. And then I was trying to focus more on the micro, you know, and like digging through stocks. And then you started talking Bitcoin. And then I was kind of like, okay. And I churned off. And I guess that I'm not, maybe I am saying this because the price ran, but I don't know what it is. I, I think that there was an adoption cycle that you clearly identified and were right. And that was an idea when you were pitching it and it was that nascent that if I was further along in my development cycle, I think I probably could have joined you at that time right here. I think, Oh, as always with price, you need to have different questions as the price goes higher. Right. And I don't have the answers at these prices or whatever, but I I do think that I probably would have benefited from embracing the learning side a little bit more as you did, because I, still had, I mean, I said like people hear Munger and turn their brain off. I still had Munger in my head saying like, this is snake oil or whatever. It's hard for me to say like, I I don't blame those guys for anything because they didn't do anything to me. But what I allowed myself to hear with Buffett saying tech is too hard and what I've allowed myself to hear, I think with the Munger Bitcoin thing, but more generally like their, their macro stuff. I think a lot of people crap on macro a lot and you know, I'm not going to sit there and become a macro specialist or whatever, but I do I do acknowledge that being curious about it leaves you less blind. This is one of my biggest frustrations with Buffett. One of my biggest complaints about Buffett is when he says, you know, we just put that in the too hard bin or we're not smart with tech, so we just stay away from it. I've studied the brain. I, I love reading books about how the brain works. And I really enjoy studying artificial intelligence. And one of the things that, that I feel that is really important to a person's understanding of how their brain operates is just cognitive conditioning and how your subconscious dominates so much of who you are and what you do. And you don't have conscious access to any of it. And so when you program yourself that you tell yourself, and I, and I think what started as just them being overly humble of in a, in kind of a joking kind of way that had been propagated and said to themselves for 40 years, actually materialized and produced mm. the, the outcome of them actually being tech idiots. You know, now what their, would their, be? their Apple position obviously has worked out very well for them. Yeah. But yeah. I you know I, what I, would be interesting about that. They would be a victim of exactly what Charlie talks about, the, you know, when he's like, don't hammer things into your own head. That's right. If that's true. Now, maybe they're just saying it on the stage, but behind closed doors, we see a whole different side of them that I obviously don't have access to. 
And they're like, oh yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting. And, and this would, I would, I would argue with myself on this. When you hear them on the stage, actually talk about some of this tech stuff, they actually are pretty well informed. Yeah. And so I would, I would argue with myself as to, as to that. But I, what I think the problem is, is you have so many disciples of, of these two that then go and tell themselves that same thing. Like, ah, I'm just going to put that one in the too hard bin. Right. And yeah, tech's really hard. So I just stay away from it. I'm looking for the next C's candy. And you have these people that follow them that just keep saying this narrative to themselves and they then actually realize it. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think that happened to me that curiosity killed, thankfully, is I started to look for the next C's candy by studying what C's candy actually did. Right. So increased store count, better throughput, price yeah. increases. That doesn't mean it's got to be a freaking candy store. That's right. You know, or something in confectionery or anything in CPG or any of that stuff, right? It just means that's the playbook that they were looking for. That's where they understood that playbook playing out, and that's the bet they laid. Or, and, and, and here's another uh, example. I, I agree with everything you just said, Bill. My, where my frustration, I think, really comes from with, with them is because I used to tell myself, I, you can't understand macro. Just ignore it. Just focus on micro, right? Yeah. I can tell you right now, my best trade, hands down, like not even close. Yeah, it's been a Bitcoin, macro one. Yeah. It's been a, a macro trade to epic proportions, probably bigger than, than you know. Yeah, it changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So if I kept telling myself macro is too hard, let's put it in the too hard bin. There's no way you can actually understand that. Boy, and, and I used to tell myself, ah, you can't understand currencies. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that, that those things are something that I've learned from Buffett and Munger, but not like I've learned everything else, which was in a favorable way or, or in, in, a, in a way that was constructively demonstrated to me. It was actually their faults and their mistakes that, that they taught me. Yeah, or maybe said slightly less inflammatorily is... Like we were talking about why do people have emotional responses? And I think my emotional response to the people that I don't think think anymore when they talk is really because I'm mad at myself that I didn't think more back in the day. Like when that first iPad or iPod came out, the one that had the wheel that spun, like I didn't need to be a genius to know that Apple was a decent trade at that time. It was actually even cheap. Right. But instead of even being curious enough, I said to myself, well, text too hard. And like, imagine exactly. how stupid that decision was. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, I have a nice life, but that would have been a game changer. That's right. Now, could I have held it this long? Probably not, but I would have made a fair amount. Yeah. Just I, I, the point for me is really be careful what you tell yourself because you might just realize it. Yeah. Where'd you get so interested in the brain? Investing. Yeah. You look at Dahlia, you look at Stan Druckenmiller, you look at some of these folks and they pay very close attention to how they think. Where are their biases? Well, and, it, and I think a lot of investors will go and say, what are my biases? That's the classic like, oh, let me read the book Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Like the, the classic, this is what everybody says to do so they go and do it. But I would challenge you to go even a layer deeper than that. 
how do how does your brain actually work? How does it wire itself? How does your neurons condition themselves? Which ones actually have conscious access versus ones that just automatically fire that are completely out of your conscious access? What does that mean? What is your environment that's actually conditioning these things? I think when a person really digs deep onto how all that stuff works, they understand that there is a hidden force that is so insanely powerful that they can harness for accomplishing and achieving pretty much anything they want in their life. I talk about Tony Robbins a decent amount. It's not because I'm like some super big fanboy. I just think he's really good at packaging psychological concepts for the masses. And he was for me. And one thing that he said that like totally changed the way that I live is the quality of your questions determines the quality of your outcome. Oh, absolutely. Right. And it's like, if you want better answers, ask yourself better questions. Questions. Yes. And when I started to like reframe some of the questions that I asked, and I mean, I, I don't know all the questions to ask myself. Right. But I've figured out more now than I had in the past. Right. It's like, rather than saying that doesn't make sense, saying, well, what might I not understand about that? Like even just planting that seed in my brain has really benefited me. And funny enough, I got an email from somebody today and he was like, hey man, you know, I re- do you want to be like happy or do you want to be rich? And you're doing all this media and like I hear, I hear how open-minded you are and you know, some of the times you get really passionate, like, do you think you're doing the best thing for you? And I just wrote him back and I said, like, to the extent you're worried about me, I really appreciate that. (laughs) Right. Like, thank you. (laughs) On the other hand, like things are working out pretty well for me. And I'm not trying to say that like in a don't bring this stuff to me way. But what I am trying to say is like, just because I have a different approach doesn't mean that I am wrong. Right. And just because I'm a value guy that's trying to figure out what people are seeing in these tech companies doesn't mean that I'm going to abandon everything that I mean, my biggest my biggest money was made. Transdime was basically trading on liquidity concerns. Colony was completely bombed out. Curate was completely bombed out. Like I'm still a value guy. I just don't think I need to circle like mining companies trading at depressed price to books to express that I'm a value person. But I have found that, I don't know, mo- most people are super, super helpful. And I think even the ones that push back a little bit are trying to help. But I I would, if you're hearing this and feel like I'm talking about you, like just, you know, ask better questions and maybe maybe realize that people are doing things different ways doesn't mean that one way is right or wrong. Nor do I think other people's ways are wrong. Yeah. I love the 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 binary choice that the guy wrote, did you want to be happy or rich? Who says I can't be both, right? Like, (laughs) have you told yourself that so many times that you have now cognitively programmed yourself to believe that you can only be one of the two, right? Yeah. That is a program that's running in that dude's head that he has told himself so many times that he is now going to realize unconsciously that he has to be one of those two things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a lot, the other thing that's funny man is I'll I'll be like open about I'm I'm pretty insecure. The reason that I'm able to do a lot of this stuff is I've inherited uh what I have and that created for a long time I ran from like I'm not worthy thing and whatever. And people have reached out and they're like, "You know, 
I hope that you feel worthy. It's like, dude, I appreciate it. The only reason I'm able to say this stuff out loud is I have done the work to be comfortable commenting yeah. on my insecurities. Like, yes. I, I get who I am. I get my demons. And it took a lot of fucking time to be able to say a lot of this stuff out loud. Yeah. But now that I have, like, sometimes it's I liberating. kept... Yeah, man. And I kept a lot of it in because I was really afraid. Like, oh, well... I don't know if I can make it. What if I need to go get a job from somewhere else? I can't like actually be myself because people may not like me. And yeah. once I just said, I'm done with all this stuff, like it was like completely freeing. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is like everybody's got stuff. Like who cares? That's right. The irony of all of it is that, that the fear that people have, irregardless of what it is, each person's got their own fears, but the more that they feed on that, the more that they actually realize it. And it goes yes. back to everything that we were just saying about programming yourself, programming your subconscious. You're telling yourself, I'm not worthy. I'm not this. And guess what? You're, you're realizing it. You're making that happen. And so yeah. when, when people make the decision, they're like, no, you know what? I am worthy. And I'm not worried about talking about this particular topic. And I don't care what anyone believes or thinks because it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And when you shed those those fears out of your life, because that's, you know, at the root of it, when you ask why five times and you get down to the core of what's driving, it's a fear yeah. that's driving it. You know, anytime you see somebody acting strange, just, you know, if you dig deep enough, there's a fear down there driving it. <laughs> yeah. So this is a perfect time to ask you, what was it like to, to like sort of do the Bitcoin spinoff and be like full blown public about being such a Bitcoin advocate? It, like, I'll was, be honest was there you, a lot it, of fear there? Cause that was a big show when you, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to frame it like you left the show, but I also do think that like not acknowledging that you, you sort of did leave the main Saturday show to do the Wednesday show. I mean, yeah, to me, that was a big career risk that you took. Yeah. I felt pretty, if I was really going to do the ballsy call, I would have done it back before the having event. That would have been a real risky decision. I talked about it on the show. I said, hey, I think this is a really important trade for people to pay attention to. I made a very bold, this was at the start of 2020. I said, by the end of this year, it's going to be $20,000. That was obviously a very bold call. The having event happened. Everything that I suspected was going to play out from an adoption rate due to the scarcity of the protocol, basically delivering less Bitcoin into the market. It all played out. And here, lo and behold, I think by the end of the, of the year, it was at 26,000 or 20,000 still think you're wrong and people still think I'm wrong. That's but, crazy to me, man. Like that's crazy. Yeah. What, what aren't people listening to? But so going to the show. So in the fall time frame, I was like, all right, Stig, I think and Stig, Stig's a Bitcoiner. He's just not as head over heels as I am, but he definitely has a position. He's had a position for a very long time. And so he, he understands it. He understands the narrative. He's definitely more cautious, which I think is just his personality than I am. And so when I told him, I said, Hey man, I, I truly think that by the end of 2021, this could be at a hundred thousand dollars or more. And I think that if we're not creating content around this, we're crazy. And cause I mean, at the end of the day, we're a business, right? And I, I really don't think that I'm wrong about it at this point because I was starting to get confirmation that everything that I was saying up to that point was actually playing out. And so he, he was like, let's do it. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to break off. I'll do That's this full dope, time. Man. That's what's up. Yeah. 
And so I broke off. I did, I did the Bitcoin piece. He's like, all right, I'll continue to do the traditional show. We're going to look at maybe bringing somebody else in because Stig, Stig runs the operations of everything. Stig is, Stig is the guy who like gets everything done. I am not. Well, that's because you got other stuff going on, man. I've got and other thank things. Thank you for going. your service. <laughs> I've got other things going on. And so Stig, you know, we started trying to look for another host to come in to replace me on the Saturday show because Stig's extremely busy and it's a lot of work, as you well know. Yeah. And so it's really kind of well, it's worked out just amazing. And I have such a passion for the subject. Just the investment thesis aside, I'm an engineer at heart. I am much more interested in engineering and building things than I am finance, to be quite honest with you. I love the math of finance. And I think that's one of the reasons I like Bitcoin so much. And so when I'm looking at how the protocol functions, the encryption functions and all that kind of stuff, like, dude, I'm just a pig in mud. And then you, you wrap it onto the whole macro backdrop and the funds flow and all this stuff, this public, this public ledger that you can get all this data from. Like for me, I'm just, <laughs> I look forward to every conversation. And so it's just a, it's kind of a perfect fit. And so was I taking backlash from people? Absolutely. Am I still taking back? Absolutely. Does it hurt my feelings? It's really easy to just kind of laugh at people when you're crushing the hell out of the trade. <laughs> yeah. And, and that doesn't mean it's going to keep going that way, but all indications from just a fundamental level, like going back to like the adoption rates, the network effects and all those kind of things that are playing out. I mean, come on. This is a very big deal. And if people aren't paying attention to it, I would tell you, you, you might want to take a closer look because from, from my vantage point, this thing's about to eat the world. So I guess it, to circle back to some of the things that you had said about your interest in the brain, do you worry at all that being an engineer and finding such an elegant answer to a problem that bothered you in monetary policy combined with your love of macro and it paying you a lot, do you worry that sometimes you're like a little bit too involved to take a step back to see the field for what it actually is? Absolutely. So I'm a person who is, hey, you have an argument, you have a counter argument, I really want to hear it. Let's have that discussion. But if I see a person who's coming to have that discussion and it's all about me personally, I already know I'm dealing with somebody who has major fundamental flaws in their thinking. Mm. And so I might just write them off and say, hey, get out of my face. Yeah. Because if you're coming at me personally, that tells me that it's not about the argument or the topic or achieving a deeper understanding of the truth. It's about, I'm upset that you used to do this Buffett style investing and you don't do it anymore. And, and you made a lot of money last year and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. you and I are probably not going to have the, the level of conversation that you think we're going to have. <laughs> you know, what's kind of funny about it though, man, you said that when you start, when you first got interested in it, I think you had like you were creative enough to have the venture capital type long time frame, right? And seeing how the asymmetry actually plays out, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is kind of a Buffett type bet. Like when he oh, this is Coke, a huge. He was yeah. thinking way far out, and yeah. meanwhile, I see some people have turned value investing into like, I got to buy a 50 cent dollar, flip it for 80 cents and go out and find another 50 cent dollar. And it's like, yo, you're paying a lot of tax 
And I find it hard to believe that you really understand the business risk that you're taking if you're going like on a valuation first basis. I think it can work in the right wrapper. Like if you have an ETF that is systematically exploiting the inefficiency of behavior in, in the market, I can buy that argument. I cannot get myself to think that I have the capability to repeatedly outplay the market in a psychological game when I'm yeah. fundamentally saying the market has a bias. Like why would I not be subject to a similar bias? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't sell it. I just keep buying more whenever. So like back whenever the having event happened, I went out and bought calls on Bitcoin, physically settled calls. I didn't buy calls that matured three months later. I bought calls that were a year and a half out because I wanted to be in a long-term tax bracket. I was buying these calls for $3,000 with a 10K strike that matured in December of 2021. And so I absolutely. Oh, and you thought that it could be up to a hundred thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. So you thought you legitimately had at least a fifteen to one risk reward, or uh, no. I mean, probably higher, thirty. Yeah. yeah, I'm just that's why I'm saying like if you were wrong on the hundred thousand. Yeah, my by my calculations of where I thought it was going, I thought I was going to have a thirty x return on that position, and so far I'm very right about that. We'll see how it ends up. You know, I'm still holding them. So I'm, I'm saying this because I'm confirming what you're saying is I, I'm treating this of, in a very Buffett kind of way. Like this is a very long hold for me. In fact, now that you have a borrowing and lending market that's being stood up around this, I might not even ever have to sell it. I might yeah. be able to, to lend it. Right? Can we talk about this a little bit? Because I heard, you, I heard you talk about how you can lend it out for 8%. And it was framed as like risk-free. When you say that it's risk-free, is your the reason that you're able to use that conclusion that you think that the probability of a long-term impairment from these levels is so low that like because someone to me, I hear 8%, I would say, okay, well, you're, you're, your risk is that the the Bitcoin price drops 10. Now you've, you've got paid 8, but you lost 10. You're down 2. Right, so I was I was kind of curious to hear you think through why you you're so amped up about this particular lending market. So I'm more interested in the lending market because I think it actually brings about real free and open interest rates to the world. But we'll put that aside. So when we're talking about lending in this space, a everything's over collateralized. B everything is immediately settled. So when you're dealing with, so think of it like this, let's say that your house, let's say you took out a loan against your house. The house is completely paid off. Let's say the value of the house is $500,000 and you take out a, uh, in, an equivalent would be a $250,000 loan against your house, which is completely paid off. Not only that, but the house is settling in a liquid market that trades 24 seven every single holiday and it can be immediately settled if the valuation of your house would start to approach the parity of the loan that you took on of $250,000. That's what's happening in Bitcoin. Okay. So when you say over collateralized, you're saying the loan to value ratio is call it 50%. 50%. Yeah. Yep. You're and exactly then, right. and, which is confusing can... for, a, so you understand that, but many of your listeners will hear 50% and think that it's under collateralized at 50%. Yeah. It is not. 
Yeah, because you have an asset value that that's two x what you're borrowing. Exactly. What your, yeah, what your loan rate is. Exactly. So okay. if you want to take out a loan and against your Bitcoin, you can borrow two hundred fifty thousand dollars of fiat cash, but you're going to have to make a deposit of five hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin, which would be about ten Bitcoin that you'd have to deposit. It would be locked in escrow, and then if the price comes down and it starts reaching the parity of the loan, it'll be immediately settled. It'll be immediately liquidated, and mm-hmm. you'll be given you'll be given the remainder back. You'll be given your five Bitcoin back. That's interesting. So, huh? So, all right. This so, is, as your house in our theory, in our in our example, as your house declines to the loan value, it can settle immediately. So, your collateral covers. You would still have the risk of Bitcoin, though, wouldn't you? Like the like the well, you have you have the risk of transaction. You have you the still risk have currency your, risk, for lack of a better term. Absolutely, you have yeah. currency risk of your deposit changing in value relative to everything else, and you will never remove that risk from anything that you ever put on deposit. Can you start to enter swaps on that? Can you enter swaps on like on if the I want currency risk, like because you could start to hedge your currency risk. You would have to do that in some other type of market. Now, what's really fascinating in this particular space is you're getting into peer-to-peer lending. And I would make the argument that your peer-to-peer lending is going to be lower risk than some entity putting your deposit into some black box that you can't see the public address for the deposit of the escrow. And this is really going to flip people on their head because it's the polar opposite of what anyone thinks, especially in a fractional reserve system. So if I go onto, there's a platform called HODL HODL. You can go on there. You got your coins. You make your deposit. You can see the escrow address so you know it's actually sitting there. You hold one of the three keys to unlock the escrow. The platform owner holds one of the keys, and then the person on the other side of your counterparty holds one of the keys. So if they don't want to release the escrow, then you go to the platform owner, and they'll release the escrow. Hmm. But you can always see that you're over-collateralized. And good Hmm. luck finding that anywhere in traditional markets. And the rates are still quite a bit north for U S dollars, 20%. No way. Way. So now, now you understand why I'm looking at, I mean, why is it set so high? Is it because the person that's lending the Bitcoin, like, so doesn't want to let go of the Bitcoin. That's right. So bill 6% for Bitcoin, 10, uh, six to 10% for Bitcoin. If you're going peer to peer, right? 20% for US dollars. So now what does that tell you about the risk profile of everybody who's operating in this economy uh, for for the Bitcoin space, how they view the dollar? Yeah. It's it speaks volumes. They don't right? want them. What happens if the rest of the world starts to look at this market and say, "Hold on a second. Maybe this thing over here is a, an accurate representation of the risk-free rate that's being of the premium of the risk-free rate that's being built and constructed on top of inflation. What if that is the real risk-free rate? What I, the heck does that do to valuations? Here's, all right. So here's the only thing that I'll push back on you here. One, I don't disagree with the what if. What I would say to you is I think that someone like me at this point would say, I don't know that that's an accurate place to price the risk because the like that community is biased negatively against fiat. So they're going to set yes. a higher rate than what a normal rate would be sort of in a in a pure market. Well, the, the thing that's driving the rate is what you can capture in the derivatives market. So when you look at the spread, 
uh, just go into a futures market and you look at the the long tail, the Bitcoin prices in Contango, physically settled Bitcoin derivatives markets. There's a massive Contango that has a spread, a risk-free spread that people can capture at around 20%. And that's what's driving the interest rates. All right. Can you explain Contango? Because I always mess that up with backwardation unless I'm like actually looking at... Uh, at, at so uh, you're... Sp- your spot's $10. Your future six months from now is $15. Yeah, it's going to be higher. Is your, yep, your contango. Your backwardation is the other way when around. When it's lower, yeah. So here's the thing that'll really make your mind spin. When we talk about a contango, we're typically talking about the, the cost of storage being bid into the future price because there's a supply shortage of storage. The cost is going up the store and it's getting bid into the future price because if it's oil, right, you don't have the capacity to store it. And so you have to push that delivery further out into the future and the price of storage is getting bid into that price. Bitcoin doesn't have that problem. It doesn't have any cost for the most part. I mean, it's so minuscule, it's, it's not even worth mentioning to store physical Bitcoin in a hardware wallet. What's this I hear about all these people say that the energy that it takes though is like crazy. That's not my cost. Yeah, so that's an externality. Yeah, that's not my cost. Those are miners that are trying to capture new flow of the remaining coins that are going to be dropped into the market or they're trying to capture the fees that are associated with transactions on the blockchain. So that's not my mm-hmm. cost at all. If I put my Bitcoins onto the into my hardware wallet, I got a small transaction fee to get them there. That goes to the miners and the electrical expense that you're talking about. Once they're there, they sit there and they, they continue to be there until I want to use them again. So there's no cost there. When you look at how easy it is to physically settle. So like, let's say you and I were moving gold bars from Switzerland to LA, like the cost of transportation is enormous to get it physically settled with Bitcoin, you could literally hold up your phone with a QR code on your phone. I could scan it through this video chat. In fact, I did this with a guy the other night when we were talking about the layer two, I could scan it and immediately pay you immediately settle on the layer two lightning network at any size of a transaction. Yeah. I had a conversation with this guy. Do you know Tyrone V Ross from the Twitter machine? No, I don't know. He's a great guy, man. I, I'm convinced if he wants a, a uh, career in politics, he's slam dunk, <laughs> slam dunk. But he comes at Bitcoin. I don't like him already. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. I say it because you would like him. I don't say it because he's a hack. He he comes at Bitcoin from a, a... His underlying thesis in the conversation that we had is like, it is really expensive to be poor in this country. And the access to financial services and the underbanked is a real, real problem. And then he has a second problem that he's identified, like cross-border payments that go through like MoneyGram and how, you know, how much you lose in the transaction. And he, he sort of got me interested in Bitcoin because he pitched it as a large solution, like a, a potential solution to those issues. Huge. And I was like, okay, yeah, I was like, okay, so here's a use case that I can kind of wrap my head around because I don't like the, well, you're not going to buy your coffee in Bitcoin. Like that kind of, I don't, I don't love that argument, right? The only one holding that one up is taxes right now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's got to be a realized, realized event, right? Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, but would, be, that the, would suck. Your Bill, coffee would cost a fair. Well, I guess I, I don't know. It, I was talking long-term? to a guy. I was talking to a guy, Ryan Gentry. He's an ex. He works at Lightning Labs. This is a company that's building things on top of the second layer of Bitcoin called the Lightning Network. It immediately settles. It you're dealing with Bitcoin. We were talking about transaction size and what I can send. And I said, could I send you five Satoshis right now? And for anybody who doesn't know what a Satoshi is, it's 10 to the negative eighth. If you go one Bitcoin decimal point, 10 to the negative eighth, you move the decimal point that many times over. That's how many, that's one Satoshi. That's the lowest number of unit that you can transact in with Bitcoin. And I said, can I send you five Satoshis, which is like worth a third of a penny? Can I send that to you right now? He goes, yeah. And he held up his QR code. I sent immediately got it one third of a penny. And I could have sent him like one fifth of a penny. I sent him five Satoshi. I could have sent him one Satoshi or two Satoshis and it would have cleared no cost immediately over the internet, completely secure. And if I wanted to send him $10 million, I could have done that. Yeah. So think about what the implications of that are in the developing world that are unbanked and they're taking possession of these units that just kind of seem to just keep going up in, in buying power. Think about the implications of that. It's insane. Yeah, I thought when Tesla purchased the, however much they did, what was it, a billion dollars? Is that? I think the right they amount? did 1.5 for their, for their principal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't know. People can, I mean, I, I have bashed the stock in the past. I'm sorry if people are listening and you obviously have a Bitcoin crew and here I am <laughs> and I'm talking negatively about Tesla and the Venn diagram. I don't mean to offend people that are listening. Thank you for listening. But it's really hard to look at that transaction and still be like, eh, this isn't an incremental big step. Like, I, I don't know. I'll just talk about me. When that happened, I was like, okay, it's kind of getting a little bit clearer where this could go, right? Well, you- maybe not where it will go, and maybe Elon is a hack and like the bears are right and whatever, but the probability of it sort of hitting critical mass when a guy like him does something like that and he's viewed as somebody that thinks forward a long time and society works on social signaling and you understand the power of reflexivity, it's definitely incrementally a big positive. How big of a positive, we'll sort of see in the future, right? But it this is this is the it thing was people a moment need to chew that on. even I got. The people need to think, this is a guy who's trying to have inter- energy independence around the world. It's like one of his prime uh, mission statements, right? Is this harnessing energy and applying it into cars and whatnot. Why would a guy like him be in, involved in Bitcoin if there's this big concern about energy? It doesn't make any sense, does it? That's, that's worth a five whys right there. And, and when you start digging, <laughs> you're going to find some really, really interesting things that pop out of that specific question. You want to give like a couple of these interesting so, nuggets? So let's think about it. He wants to put a battery into your garage that stores solar energy that's being harnessed off of your house, right? So that you can charge your car and you can use it during the nighttime when you don't have, it's a load thing. So here enters Bitcoin. 
And there's people already doing crazy things like trying to set up a mining rig off of anything that generates heat in your house because it's powering something else. Hmm. You wouldn't believe the things that people are trying to hook mining rigs up to, to capture just even the smallest amount of energy. Because what they do is then the, these mining rigs are then plugged into pools of other people that are providing uh, processing power that's securing the Bitcoin blockchain. And they're getting a cut of whatever reward is actually mined out of that pool. And so when you start looking at things from this frame of reference, you're saying, well, instead of putting up like my demand for my house based off of solar energy and putting panels on there, I need to have the demand of 10 for my peak during the day. But generally, I'm really only using about five on any given period of the time, but, but I need a, t- a peak of 10. Well, what in the world are you going to do with the overcapacity of five for the rest of the day? You can charge your battery, but then once that gets full, what are you doing with that five? <laughs> well, maybe you Send can just start mining else. Bitcoin with it. Yeah. 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 You divert it to another, another, uh, activity. So there's, there's a guy named Marty Bent. There's some mining companies. I forget which state they're doing this. And, they have to flare off methane for their mining operator. Like these, I'm talking about like real mining operations, not Bitcoin mining. Oh, okay. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's oh a little goodness. confusing. <laughs> so they're doing mining and they've got methane that they've got to flare off because they're out in some remote location. Well, they have aircraft. The state has aircraft that comes and like actually looks and monitors how much flaring is taking place. And if they're exceeding it, they get hit with these huge fines. And they can only actually do their mining operations. I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say half of the, the, they can only do it for 12 hours out of a 24 hour day because of the flaring that they're doing. They have to actually stand down operations because of the amount of flaring, the methane flaring they're doing. So Marty and his company go and they're like, Hey, let's put some mining rigs into a container, like a travel, uh, a shipment container. Let's put it out there on the remote location. Let's hook it up to a generator that can convert the methane into energy will power these mining. The, now I'm talking about Bitcoin mining. Yeah. What a beast. This we'll, is a smart we'll, dude. We'll power these mining rigs in these containers. We'll mine some Bitcoin. Not only that, but now that we're not flaring anymore, we can continue to run 24 hour operations of the real mining that we're doing. Doubling in that example, we'd be doubling our, our revenues. Hmm. Okay. And each one of his containers are kicking off anywhere from 500 to a million dollars a year in Bitcoin revenue. Okay. Wow. So that's smart, dude. It's out of control. And this is just, I mean, dude, this is the tip of the iceberg of the infrastructure that's being built around this. And when you think about things from a network effect and you think about, okay, well, if he's doing that on Bitcoin and then these derivatives markets are being stood up and you got all this like, dude, it just the rabbit hole never ends. Yeah, well, and that's that is where I have gotten curious and I have started to say, like, if even if it is just an idea, it's an idea that's hitting critical mass or has. Yes. hit. Yeah, no, so no doubt once about that it. happens. That's not really a valid criticism anymore in my head. Right. That might have been a valid criticism when it was starting to get off the ground. Well, and and here's the thing that I think is probably one of the most important things about Bitcoin that is probably the most misunderstood things about Bitcoin. You cannot pull the supply to the left when you're mining it. What do you mean? 
So if gold provides such a perfect example of what's happening in physical reality versus what Bitcoin's doing in the digital space. So if the price of gold would run $500 from where it is right now, you'd have every miner on the planet turn on all their capacity, hire as many people as they could open as many mining shafts as they could to try to get this stuff out of the ground at a faster pace. Hmm. And they would. And they would supply more gold into the market, which would then provide a homeostasis for the price action to calm it down. Or you end up in an oversupplied market because there's too much capital deployed. And and you have 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 a price problem. That's right. And so you have, and, and this is why when you talk to people in Bitcoin and they keep saying, stock the flow, stock the flow, stock the flow. What they're getting at is an idea that's actually been around for a very long time. Anybody that trades commodities is well aware of a stock-to-flow model where you're talking about the existing stock of gold that that is in, in existence in the world compared to the amount of flow that's being dropped into the market that's actually being mined today is two of the biggest driving factors of the price action. If you assume that the demand for the thing that's that's being dropped into the market, in this case it's gold, remains relatively the same. Okay. So if we could go and we could say, if we could play God for the day and we could wave a wand and and make all the gold nuggets that are in the earth's crust right now, half as much as they are one second ago, what would happen to the price of gold as these miners go in there and they're finding half as much as they used to with the same number of workers? Should go what up. would happen to the price? That's should right. Go up. Yeah. It would go up and then it would reach some type of new homeostasis level of price action, assuming the world still values gold in the way that it that it was valuing it for whatever reasons those are. Okay? Can I can I I'm I'm not trying to cut you short, but I yeah. think that that's a really interesting and important thing that you just said. The assuming that the world continues to value gold in the way that it does. Yes. I would argue part of your thesis, as I understand it, is you have a having cycle combined with the idea that the assuming the world will continue to value it actually could be turned into, and what if the world materially re-rates how it does value it? And you can see the smirk on my face, because what you're actually talking about is doubling down on the narrative. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So not only do you have this playing out, but you actually have layer twos being built on top of it. You have the adoption rate. You look at the number of wallets and addresses that keep getting opened up. You look at the number of hash rate that's coming online. You look at all these things and you're saying, my God, not only are you waving the magic wand every four years and cutting the supply in half, okay, but you also have this insane network effect of people that are trusting this and adopting it as their new unit of account or using it or playing around with it or creating mining rigs and and putting them on site and shooting them up to a Bitcoin satellite that's dedicated to go to remote locations for such things. Yes, that's a real thing. Okay. It sounds out there to me. It's not. It's a company called Blockstream. So now there's another magic wand event here that so few, so, so few understand. Okay. Not only do you have the, the having event that happens every four years, But back to my original comment that you can't pull the supply to the left. How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. Every two weeks, this protocol does what's called a difficulty adjustment. Every two weeks. The two-week difficulty adjustment and the four-year halving cycle 
work hand in hand like a team of twins that just goes around beating up everybody. Okay. So the difficulty adjustment says it senses the activity on the network and the way that it can sense the activity on the network. And this is all protocol, right? This is all code that's doing this decentralized consensus code. It's what it's doing is it's sensing how fast the miners are solving the puzzle, the mathematical puzzle. So if I said, Hey, Bill, factor, factor four, factor the number four for me. You'll say, okay, it's two and two, or it's four and one, right? That, that's your guess. And one of those two guesses is right. Okay. So you just got a block reward. Now, if we had another four people come here and I give you another puzzle and I give a puzzle of, of a similar magnitude that's really simple, right? Now, of those four people, somebody might solve that a little faster than you did, okay? And so as I'm providing these puzzles to you, as if I'm the protocol, I can sense that there's more people. If, if I was giving these puzzles and my eyes were closed and I couldn't distinguish between the voices, I could sense that there's more people in the room because y'all are solving these puzzles really fast. And if everyone walked out the door and I was giving the, a more difficult puzzle, I would also sense that there's some people that have left, so I better make the puzzles easier. And so that's what the hmm. difficulty adjustment hmm. is doing. Is that's it's, kind of cool. It's, it's, it's very elegant. It's very elegant. And so what happens through this is by me adjusting or by the protocol adjusting this difficulty, what I'm effectively doing is saying, I'm only going to give you a reward every 10 minutes. Okay. Statistically speaking over a long period of time, you might solve the puzzle in, in one second. Okay. But, but statistically speaking, based on the difficulty of this puzzle, because it's a one-way function that's, that's, that's being guessed at, that the only way you can solve it is through guessing. I know that it's going to take about this many guesses before somebody gets it right, mathematically speaking. And that difficulty is being adjusted in order to peg and keep the issuance rate of the reward at 10-minute blocks. Okay, so now going back to our gold example, why is this important? If we go back to our gold example and remember how we waved the magic wand and we said, now there's half as much gold nuggets in the crust of the earth that can be found. Where what the example of the two-week difficulty adjustment would, would be is go ahead and bring an army of new people to mine this. If you had 10 people before and now you're going to show up with a million, you're still going to only find a gold nugget every 10 minutes and no more. Okay. So what in the world does that do to the price action when... Those laws, which can't be actually, that can't actually happen in physical reality, but can happen in the digital space. What happens to the price action when those are the rules that everyone has a financial incentive to participate in and have a consensus of if those are the rules? It could present a nice upside opportunity (laughs) for you. And so people now, now people real quick, who, can I, but, I, I don't Bill, want, when people okay, listen sorry. to my show, when people listen to my show and they hear me say, I think Bitcoin's going to go up and I think it's going to go up to maybe this price point in the next nine months, right before the having event happens. Okay. That's, these are some of the reasons why I say those things 
And it's not because I'm just willy nilly picking a number out of the sky. Yeah. I love mathematics and I love like engineering. So like for me, this is some really exciting stuff. So is, so that would be a short term run in a longer term or a medium term issue within a longer term trend of getting to your ultimate number of coins that are going to be ultimately issued. So, so do you view that as the, like when you're seeing that set up, are you adding tactically into a longer term thesis? And like, is that how you treat those kind of events? Cause it seems to me like that's a, I don't want to say temporary because it's not, it's not the right word, but it's not, it's not part of the long term. That's just kind of like a th- setup issue. I think it's the perfect term for what probably anybody who's listening to this that's skeptical of Bitcoin is thinking. Is they're saying, well, that's a short term thing and you're going to eventually run out of coins and then that whole incentive structure that you're describing is going to go away. And the reason that that's not true is because you have the Bitcoin reward that's paid out to the miner that guesses. That's, that's ultimately securing each block that gets built. They're paid through the block reward that keeps getting cut in half. And they're also paid by people that are paying a fee to get their transaction included in that base block. Hmm. Okay. So what we're finding is those fees that people are willing to pay in order to, like, if I was going to send you something on the base layer right now, I would guess, and I don't know what it is, I could look it up, but I would guess that the transaction fee would probably be about $3 for me to send that to you if I wanted it included in the next block. Any, no, th- any amount, right? You're, that you're talking yeah, any about amount. I could send, I, I could send a dollar, you- A dollar, $10 million, dollars, three bucks is what you're paying. Billion dollars. Yeah. Okay. I could send you a billion dollars and the transaction fee would be $3 if I wanted it in the next block. If I'm willing to wait you know, an hour- the price is probably half as much, something like that. And, th- and, and this is important that we're talking about the base layer because when you go in the, into the Lightning Network, it doesn't offer the same level of security as the first layer. I have no idea how in the world you would ever hack the second layer, but if you got somebody that's really smart on encryption, maybe they could, they could tell you how a person could have stranded coins or something in some really way out there on the bell curve type scenario. But if you're sending somebody a hundred bucks, yeah. <laughs> no one's no one's going to ever try to uh, do that on the second layer where you have immediate clearance with no fees. So to answer your question, as as you get further and further out into the adoption cycle of this thing, let's say we warp ourselves thirty years into the future, the fees are becoming a primary means of rewarding the miners that are continuing to provide the security to the network and hmm. mine each block. Huh. So, okay, because that was one of my my questions. It was once all the coins are sort of issued, what's the incentive for the miners to continue yep. to participate? But there's a fees. massive there's a massive incentive there. There's people that have written just amazing articles that go way into depth on on this exact scenario. One of the people I would tell you is Dan Held has a great article on this crossover and changeover period that gets into all the financial incentives and why it's going to offer enough security to the to the blockchain over time. It's it's a fascinating read. Do you worry I I've well, you don't worry. I'm sure you have a good answer for this, but I I have read people that have said like, well, you know, 90% of the bitcoins are held by, you know, w- small percentage of people, so there's going to be an eventual flood of supply on the market and that's going to crash the price. I mean, is that a concern that 
You see the exact opposite of that. Yeah. So people that have been in the game for a long time, their buying power is so massive that they're spending of it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like need to, they don't need to use too much of it. And so then the argument I had Mark Cuban throw this one at me. His big argument was, well, if you weren't one of the lucky few that bought it early on, then how in the world are they ever going to get redistributed to everybody? And I think it's a good question. And I don't think a lot of people will like the answer because I think the answer is that everything's going to get repriced in Bitcoin terms and it's not going to be at an advantageous price point for the people that are holding the equity. But there's going to eventually be a point where the yields that that equity will provide will eventually be higher than the yields that that one can capture in lending. And when that happens, I know me personally will happily step back as the value investor that I am and buy the living hell out of that equity. Yeah. And there's your redistribution of the coins. Hmm. Well, that is super interesting, man. People said that I would enjoy talking to you and (laughs) they underestimated how much I would. This has been really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, to anyone that doesn't know where you are all the time, how can people find you and start down the rabbit hole with you or some, some resources that you might recommend. I'm active on Twitter and I, I truly, really enjoy interacting with people if you're kind and you're approaching the discussion from a point of view of learning and you're approaching it from an incentive of trying to discover the truth. If that's how you arrive, boy, we're going to get along really well. And if, if you're arriving because you've got some deep-seated insecurity or some fears of, of your own that are being expressed through the, through the interaction, I'll probably block you immediately. <laughs> there you have it, folks. I just that's why he and it. I actually like each other. <laughs> I don't have time for it. That's right. Well, I really appreciate you uh, stopping by the show, man. And I've admired what you've done in, in financial entertainment. And this is great to be able to talk to you about this stuff. So... I sincerely thank the trolls for making this happen. <laughs> exactly. Harness, right, harness the salt. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, take care of yourself and have a good evening. Thank you, Bill.